0: Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. There's something unpredictable in just about everything comedian Jenny Slate does. Case in point, you may have spotted her 10 years ago when, as a brand new Saturday Night Live cast member, she accidentally dropped an F-bomb on air. Jenny was publicly fired following the gaffe, leaving her with stage fright so severe it took a hypnotist to banish it. But as things often go, that history-making snafu ended up working out for the best. Jenny's next project was a series of lo-fi YouTube shorts about the quotidian life of Marcel the Shell, a tiny anthropomorphic seashell, a concept that could have easily been tweaked, but instead yielded a little slice of oddball cinematic heaven, absurd and melancholy in all the best ways. The videos went viral, but better than Marcel's immediate infamy, it was Jenny herself who emerged a thrilling and fresh comedic voice and filmmaker, willing to follow her weirdness wherever it took her a weirdness that led to a host of voiceover roles, most notably as Gidget, a pampered Pomeranian, a role she's reprising in this summer's The Secret Life of Pets 2. But let's not forget she gave us the unabashedly vain, money-hungry Mona Lisa Saperstein on Parks and Recreation. And an obvious child, she played a stand-up comedian who has an abortion after a one-night stand. It was an honest, unapologetic, and nuanced exploration of a topic we never get to see in Hollywood movies, where unwanted pregnancy plot lines usually end up with a harried but happy couple making it work. Now as Lynn on the scripted podcast, Earthbreak, Jenny plays a woman who's in her 30s and discovers she's pregnant. Oh, and she's the only person left after an alien invasion and struggling to stay alive when, as Lynn says, she's not even good at camping. Like so many of Jenny's characters, it's a razor-sharp portrait that never idealizes. And it has something real to say about the myriad, often outrageous, ways women survive. By putting ourselves first, by making hard choices, by digging deep and realizing we are much more powerful than we, or anyone else, ever thought. Just like Jenny Slate's comedy, her writing, and the actress herself. She may be hard to predict, but surviving with humor is a given. Jenny Slate, it is such a pleasure to have you on On Style today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to start off by just talking about your childhood. Both of your sisters are in the sort of wellness field, right?
1: Yeah, they are. Well, my my older sister is a nurse practitioner, and my younger sister is a mental health counselor.
0: And you decided to pursue (laughs) comedy and writing.
1: Yeah, I did. I wanted to be a actress Mm -hmm. yeah I didn't really want to be a comedian not that I don't like doing it I just when you're a young person and you don't know anything about the entertainment industry you're not like what are the different categories or my way I mean I guess now young people know about the entertainment industry like Like the specific medium that they want to actually pursue but also how it all works like I had no idea how anything worked and I just wanted to be a lady on the screen like the ones that I saw and related to
0: like who did you relate to when you were younger
1: Number one for me was Madeline Kahn. What's up, doc? She just had a really good style. And I just felt like she was really sexual. Mm -hmm. And she was really doing something specific. And it just felt like every time she was there, she didn't have to change anything about herself. And she was always drawing your eye. And you couldn't tell if the light was shining on her or the light was coming out of her. And I really felt as a young person connected to that and that when I felt good feelings about myself, I also felt that continuous loop of light. Does it come from me or is it coming to me? And it just like felt really good. And I wanted to be like that and be that.
0: Madeline Kahn, if some listeners aren't familiar with her, she was the lead actress in Young Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. which was such an incredible movie.
1: I was born in 1982, so... The people that I remember being in the zeitgeist as the pretty people were like the aunt from Full House that I can't remember her name, but now she's in really big trouble because of college Lori Loughlin? Yeah, that lady. (laughs) And like Tiffany Amber Thiessen. And I like didn't get it. I I mean, I got it. I thought they were great and pretty and all of that, but couldn't relate to that and felt shut out by that and actually felt angry about it. Wow. Yeah. From a young age. Like, why does that get to win or something? I don't know. And I think also that type of petulance and maybe a little bit of greediness is something that I've had to temper in my life because I don't think it's great. And I also think a lot of it comes from like a very, very silent but conditioning of misogyny that goes into young women. That's just like You should be like that. And if you're not like that, you should be upset about it and not like yourself and compete with other women to try to get as close to that as possible. I just think it's garbage.
0: (laughs) I remember my aunt once telling me that the specific conditioning that happened with women was that we were always sort of led to believe that there was a limited number of jobs that we could have, a limited number of cool guys we'd want to date or or even marry. And so you had to actually compete with your peers and you had to actually be ruthless when it came to sort of getting what you wanted.
1: Yeah, and here's the readjustment on that, at least for me, is, yeah, there's a limit. It's called your preference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a limited number of jobs for you because you don't want to be whatever you don't want to be. Yeah, there's a limited number of partners because some people aren't going to be attractive to you. And then there's the world, which is like, yeah, we don't pay women as much. We don't give women the same power that we endow men with and let them just like run around with it. But man, if I could go back into my 20s, the first thing I would strip myself of is exactly what you're talking about. Just really feeling like some women were on my side and other ones were trying to take something from me and feeling like really disoriented and freaked out and just all revved up about who's going to get what and really not taking any time to think about, like, what I actually might like specifically.
0: Do you think that the industry that you're in kind of exacerbates that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Of course I do. So do you think
0: you chose it in maybe some conscious or unconscious ways so you could work through some of that stuff about not feeling like you had to compete or compare yourself to other actors?
1: Yeah, like, I didn't feel bad when I saw, like, Baywatch or something I just always thought sorry but that's garbage yeah Yeah, I just thought that's garbage and I don't feel bad saying it I get that it's like fun and stuff but yeah I think it's bad (laughs) and not for me Yeah, yeah not for me but the stuff that I've had to work through I've always thought oh that's really specific to me And then the more that I have had what bell hooks would call a a raising of my feminist consciousness, Mm -hmm. the more that I'm like, "Mm, there's actually a lot of shit that I do because I've been around many, many unconscious misogynists. And I think I was one of them. You know, I was like pretty socially disenfranchised in school Mm -hmm. and felt unseen. First I was teased and then I was just ignored. And honestly, I would pick the being teased over being ignored because I had no one to fight back against. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everybody has their own struggle. I think I I might choose
0: that too, actually, because I think it's the difference between existing and not existing. And I'd rather like exist and be able to fight than to be overlooked. Yeah. Or feel not heard or seen.
1: Sure. I mean, especially if you want to be seen. That's something I've always had in me that I want to be seen. And again, that I've had to come to terms with. And not feel bad about it, like being called a ham or she wants attention. Yeah, she wants attention. <laughs> what you know, are I you would, talking about?
0: But you mentioned Gillian Robespierre before, and I said her name correct, right? It's Gillian a, actually
1: a hard G. Gillian.
0: Gillian Robespierre.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned Gillian Robespierre before, and she actually wrote and directed Obvious Child, which was a film that you were in.
1: So Obvious Child is... It's hard to describe it because I just never felt that the abortion that the main character has is the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I just want to change the way that we speak about abortion or the way that abortion is weighted anytime it is within any sort of discussion. That like the focus just goes there. I wish the focus were different or more complex. Eh, Anyway, it is a film about a comedian who is struggling to, first of all, just be good at comedy, doesn't really have her life together and ends up uh, getting pregnant after a one-night stand. And it is really about her going through the experience of wanting to have an abortion, having an abortion, and how that connects her to other people and how seeing herself in a new way because of the decision that she's been empowered to make for the path that she wants to take in her life opens her up and changes her and it's not meant to be like if you choose to have an abortion it means that you care about your career whereas Mm -hmm. if you don't you're a sucker or something it's not there's no message in that way it's more about just this woman It really I feel like the movie is about her personality and the way that it feels to be around this character. But I think the movie was um, really important for a lot of people because it just kind of revealed a culture that many of us think of as normal. Uh, And many people think doesn't exist and showed a different type of person getting an abortion. Yeah, I was really proud
0: of it. You were basically recruited for Saturday Night Live. And as the story goes, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was your first night working. My first show. Your first show, your first sketch, right?
1: The first sketch that I wrote. Yeah. I don't know if I'd been in more sketches that night, but it was like the middle of the show. Yeah.
0: But the story goes that you used the F word. You said fuck yeah, um, I did. in a sketch, which doesn't seem very shocking to me. But the fact that you found out online later that you were no longer on the show. And it's, <laughs> yeah. the point I'm trying to make is I wonder if that happened now or if Obvious Child came out now, what the reaction would be. Do you think that there's more latitude that women finally have in order to just do the kind of work that they want to do?
1: I think there's a little bit more. There's a lot of things. Do you think you
0: would have been fired now if that
1: happened today? I don't know that I was fired for saying fuck. I think I was fired because I didn't fit in there and Lauren didn't like me and I have no idea what's inside of that man's head, but... Who couldn't like you? I mean, I don't know if he liked me or disliked me as a person, but... I don't actually give a fuck what he thinks about me. I've got to tell you. And maybe I never did. And that's and why I got fired. I mean, but I'm not a disobedient person mm-hmm. by nature, nor am I a sucker. But like, I don't think it's cool when people are like instigators, like they just like are trying no, to no, store no, no, the no. pot. I think that's so stupid.
0: No, I don't think that that's yeah. what you were doing at and all. and
1: I, especially now, I, I am really one to try to avoid being like in combat with anyone and or, or poking at people, but... I can only assume that there was something about me that he just didn't have time for and didn't like. But everyone was really nice to me after that happened, and it was a complete mistake and horrible for me. I was, you know, like deeply ashamed and embarrassed, and I think there was just a lot that is strange and wrong about how Saturday Night Live is run, but I think that there are a ton of wonderful people that come through there. And I think that there's a trend of most of those people coming out with, like, a really strange, shell-shocked PTSD bit of abuse. And anyway, to answer your question, I don't know. I think the needle's been moved a bit, but not enough and not a lot. And we could do a lot better. And I think that is actually an optimistic point of view Mm -hmm. because I think it's really wrong to be like, this is enough, because it, it isn't. No. It's not enough by far. I want it to be better and for things to be more equal. So that's that's just how I feel about it. And I also feel that, like, while there is a push for more female directors and female storylines... I feel like I go into these rooms on these meetings and like half the people still have no fucking idea what's going on. That's how I feel. And that I have to sit there and be like, okay. Going on about
0: what? Like in the world? world, That they're just
1: like out of touch and really like a bunch of men congratulating themselves on figuring out how to listen. A bunch (laughs) of men congratulating themselves that their balls aren't being sucked up into their bodies because somebody said the word misogynist to them, that they're Mm. not like throwing up and becoming angry when somebody asserts that patriarchy might actually be real. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm so impatient about it. And I have a joke in my stand-up now about how like, when I was single, I was just so angry that it was very hard for me to meet anyone. I was like, do you get it? Like, do you get it or not? Because if you don't, I'm 37 years old and I wanna be in a serious relationship meaning like maybe I would like to have a baby Mm -hmm. eventually. I don't want anybody near me unless they're going to understand what it would ever mean for me to give birth in this society right now. And that's how I feel about it. Wow. And I, yeah, I feel really strongly about that.
0: No, I think that's important. I think it's really important.
1: (laughs) But I do think I like, I'm never approached by men at this point because I might have a like get the fuck away from me vibe because that's how I feel about it. It's not that I don't like men, it's that I'm so annoyed at how easy it's been
0: for them. Yeah.
1: Oh. Compared to like any woman. And I'm like a white woman, I'm not the one that it's very hard for.
0: Yeah. I have to agree with you. Do you think that your boyfriend, who's an artist and a writer, do you think that he's someone that really understands? where you're coming from, and just, like, allows you to sort of be as big as you need to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I mean, that's why I'm, like deeply in love with him uh, but you know <laughs> he's what I mean been nicest. yeah I mean he's the I've he been in relationships
0: where I felt like I had to be small mm-hmm. and it's one of the biggest things I remember about being in my 30s was just like navigating being in and out of these relationships where I just felt like I had to constantly take a temperature check when you're talking about mm-hmm. in the very beginning about your light whether you're radiating it or whether it's like actually coming to you it was always like I couldn't shine my light too brightly you yeah know? I think, especially having a propensity of dating artists or people in the creative field, it just felt like very tenuous all the time for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's sure. if that's your experience, but
1: I think part of going through my twenties was unconsciously guarding that light mm-hmm. and then blasting it super hard because I was just feeling like it's either going to be put out or it has to be totally on. And that actually, for me, just in my own emotional makeup, is exhausting and. I can't live that way because I'm actually like, even though I I can say like I guess I have a get the fuck away from me vibe or whatever, like I am maybe a mass of contradictions, but like a very gentle person. And I need I need kindness and softness and I need to be able to be many things at once. And I just didn't I don't think I gave myself that chance in my twenties because I don't think that I believed that anybody Would accept me unless I was like on all the time. I felt felt a lot of pressure. Yeah. But now I, I don't know, I've been through many changes. And I would say the past five years of my life from like age 32 to 37 have been the best years of my life, the hardest years I've had so far. And why hard? Well, I I had a lot of disruption in my personal life, mm-hmm. and do you feel comfortable talking about it? Yeah, I mean, in certain ways, there's some stuff that I'm like, I just don't want to talk about that anymore. But in terms of my own emotions, yeah, I'm comfortable talking about everything. So, what was the headline? I think the the headline for me was that I really needed to figure out what I thought about myself when a man was not defining that for me. Wow, a love relationship. Everything for me was. My worth, even though in my work, I feel that I'm really strong and in my ideology and my connection with reproductive justice or social justice, how I feel about those things, I feel so clear. And then in my personal relationships could be very unhealthy and not being a person that I liked. I really look back at the end of my marriage. I'm like, ooh, I don't like that I was like that. I'll never be that way again. And going forward in the next couple of years, the most totally bonkers I probably have ever been, you know, many regrets about much of my internal world at that point. And the one thing that I learned was shame is really useless, but just because it's useless doesn't mean that it's not also incredibly destructive. Yeah. And I feel shame deeply. And so I need to be with somebody who will let me make mistakes and not shame me. And that's a hard person to find. And it's hard to find in myself. And I'm not there yet. Not there yet. But I'm really getting there.
0: Unstyled podcast was made possible by Estee Lauder, the eponymous luxury beauty brand created by one of the world's first women entrepreneurs. As a confident rule breaker ahead of her time, Mrs. Estee Lauder once said, I never dreamed of success. I worked for it. In her entrepreneurial pursuit, she invented disruptive opportunities to connect directly with her customers in a personal way that altered the beauty industry forever. Learn more about how Estee Lauder is continuing her legacy in-store and online at EsteeLauder.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
1: I feel my emotions, they're never at 20%. You know, that's always going to be a thing that my partner has to deal with. But I do think if you are with a partner that can help you be wise about what is inside of your essential makeup, who isn't trying to like silence you, but will be like, you know what, when you feel that way, maybe just like, take two minutes before you blast out that you're like afraid that everything is falling apart. For me, My biggest fear is everything's going to fall apart. I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to seem crazy and also like have been called crazy Mm -hmm. before, which is something that makes me furious, really hurts my feelings and that I have often half believed, especially if you're heavily gaslit, for example, by a partner who's like your brain is broken or whatever. Yeah. It's just very, very hard to untangle. But I'm now at a point where I really, really don't want to feel shame because I know that it's not useful for me and that my partner does not want me to feel bad at all. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I've found a man who to me seems like he's like from outer space. <laughs> like the inside of him is so he's so beautiful. I, just, I think that
0: to find a partner that is conscious of whether or not he's clumping his stuff with your stuff. Yeah. you know what I mean? And then you start to feel more like you're on the receiving end of somebody else's bullshit. Yeah. And it gets mixed up with yours and you do feel blamed for things that maybe aren't you're doing. Like you're obviously responsible for some pieces of it, but that was a big issue for me. And I think that coming of age in my 30s, I was so afraid of being left
1: Oh yeah! I was so
0: afraid if I was really myself, if I really asked for what I wanted, if I really expressed myself, that they would leave.
1: Being in a healthy relationship, I've never experienced this before, but like, he just does all the stuff that I wish that someone would do. He's one step ahead of me, like, just making sure that I feel okay if something seems like it might make me feel uncomfortable. You know, not that that stuff's occurring all the time, but... He puts himself in my position. He cares for me. He doesn't treat me like there's something wrong with me. He treats me like I'm alive. There's a difference. I'm alive, I'm sensitive. And he doesn't ever seem to feel that that is hard work.
0: That's a big one. He
1: really expresses that it is worthy engagement.
0: Like being fatigued by your sort of true self.
1: Yeah, I mean, he does such a good job. The thing that is hard for me when there is an issue a lot of times, it's mine. Not that he's like perfect. No one's perfect. But like it has highlighted the things that are my deeper emotional reactions that are from the past. Mm -hmm. So it's like if a small thing occurs, I see it in a huge size because of something that someone said to me before and how they said that and then they left. Yeah. And I was like bad. I was the bad one, you know, and so I'm still reacting to the tremors of the destruction that happened before. And I'm still sort of like pierced by the shards of those fragments. And I, I feel injured by my heartbreaks. And I just don't want to like, bring that into the situation that I have now, which is so dreamy. And it's not me being like, (laughs) like, I remember Drew Barrymore was like always getting married when I was younger. (laughs) And I just like felt scared about that. Actresses just are always like really falling in love, aren't they? Or like, if you watch the Jane Fonda film, her different experiences with men are scary to me. Can we talk about that film for a second? Sure. Sure.
0: I didn't know anything about the documentary before I watched it, and I was watching it, and it's like the first chapter is Henry, the second chapter is Tom. Yeah, Tom.
1: That chapter really blew me apart.
0: Oh no, no, it's not Tom. Vadim or Vadim, yeah. yeah. And then it's Tom. Tom was the one that fucked us all up. Oh, Tom like
1: ripped me a new asshole. That one really made me mad.
0: Deeply fucked us up. Mm -hmm. And then there's Ted, which made me so sad. You could see he's still heartbroken over their divorce. Yeah. And I was like, god, why is this whole film about men, 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 men and then we got to the final chapter and it's Jane. Yeah. And I was like that's how long it takes. I was yeah. like, honestly, that's how long it takes and she's still learning those lessons.
1: At the end of that film Jane Fonda's like kind of wish that maybe I had been more confident. She speaks for a moment about her plastic surgery. And she's like, but this is the best I could do. You know, that's and Who I am. Yeah, I really started to think like, okay, as you said, yeah, this is how long it takes to really feel more situated in your power and clarified in your identity. But I think also, some of us who are like, you know, I'm 37, I benefit and benefited from women like that, who did something that I could see. Well, I think that there are some things that are just like, The human timeline in our spirit. Like, I actually feel that maybe I can kind of beat the odds a little bit and just have fewer husbands (laughs) and an engagement with my own self love and self acceptance that I can begin with now. And I'm saying that today on a day when I don't feel that very strongly about myself, but I know I can feel it. And you just have to keep holding on. Like, that's how I, I feel sometimes. I'm just like, just keep holding on. My little sister said to me the other day, she was like, you are taking down the last wall of your self-defense after building up like a fortress around yourself because you have had disappointments of the heart that have just been too hard for your spirit. You're taking down the last wall. You have to have faith in what is on the other side of that wall if you want to take it down brick by brick. And I I have this faith now, I do, that I can have this beautiful relationship with this man that I deeply love, that I can have a full life, that I can live on this peninsula in Massachusetts where I live right now and have my career, and that I can feel beauty in myself in so many ways until the process of becoming myself is over and I close my eyes and I conk out for good. That's my own little personal religion that I have with me. And I I just need it. (laughs) No, it's not a cult. (laughs) But I just feel like I just need it to be that strong. I need to say it It out loud. It is that strong. I need to feel it like that. And I need to be able to articulate that because when I get scared, which is a lot, there are so many abusive voices in my psyche. You're not the only one. Oh, no, I don't think I am but I'm the only one in there when I'm in there with myself. (laughs) You know, yeah, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one in this country that's gotten divorced, but uh, I'm the only one in my life as myself that has.
0: Was your divorce really hard?
1: Yeah, it was really hard. It sucked. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was something that I think needed to happen and everything, but the aftermath was really hard. I didn't know what I was dealing with at all.
0: It's such a valuable experience to be able to look at the aftermath and see growth there and to see this whole healing happening
1: as much as I wish there were a different doorway into the zone of my life that I'm in now that didn't involve divorce or other heartbreaks I am such a better partner now because of what happened and that acceleration happened really quickly when I met someone that I wanted to be with but I wasn't um panicked about it yeah and a lot of that came from, I mean, me basically getting to a point where I was like, I guess I just am going to be alone. And I guess I will just masturbate and spend my money on my own clothes <laughs> rather than like, getting like facials know, like, and things like, like that. buying like groceries to cook dinner with a partner. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess I'll just treat myself. I guess that's what my life will be now. And I'm just going to slip into my own vortex and just be free alone. And I felt that way. And then I met my current partner and was like, oh, I guess I could do all of this with him with some slight adjustments that are not degrading compromises. I'm not perfect yet. And I still make mistakes and I'm fearful or can have trust issues. But um, man, everything is shrinking. I just see it shrinking like a tumor shrinking down and I see my health becoming more apparent and I'm like, just hold on, just hold on, just hold on and be so peaceful and have faith and don't be quiet and just hold on. I
0: think also just knowing that you can be in that relationship and make mistakes because I think it's so important Ugh, when you enter yeah. into a new into a new <laughs> relationship and you feel like, I'm not gonna fuck it up, I'm not gonna fuck it up and I'm just like, you feel so self-protective yeah. and if you fuck up, you fuck up, it's okay. We all do. And it's like, I still have feelings. Sometimes I'm going to wake up in the morning and my husband and my kid are going to be gone.
1: Right. (laughs) They're going to be like, bye. And it's just, and that's not going to happen, you know? And the other thing that so many people have said to me and that I've said to myself, but when the bad me is in charge, it's hard to believe, but it's like, why would you want to be with someone that if you have a big emotional reaction, not an abusive emotional reaction, but like you just start crying really hard that they're like, whoa, man, that was scary. (laughs) And they, like, leave. Like, why would you want to be with that guy or that woman?
0: I want everyone to listen to that because I think that that is a really, really big statement because I think we have all been there. Yeah.
1: I think that you cannot avoid trauma or suffering. There are things that happen to us because that's the kind of animal that the human is. We have those reactions. They're part of how we're alive. But for me, I really don't like the idea of waste. And I don't like the idea of, like, drag, that something's heavy on you and it really reduces your speed forward. And while I can be impatient and I am constantly trying to go from potential to kinetic (laughs) in terms of, like, my energy, that's just what I'm like. For me, all of the things that have really, really hurt me are the things that I am starting to put into my own art Can we talk about that for a second?
0: Yeah. So you have a book coming out. I think it's in November, right? Yeah. It's called Little Weirds. Mm -hmm. It looks really, really beautiful. I can't wait to read it. But tell us a little bit about how long you've been working on this book and like what it's about.
1: Well, I wrote it over a year. You know, I wish I could say I spent a long, long time on it, but that's not how I work ever. When I do stand up, I have like bullet points and then go up there and do an hour. It's never written And the same was this book kind of like... so impressive. Is it? I mean, it's just like kind of what I'm like. (laughs) But getting up
0: in front of a crowd of people with just bullet points... I mean, I can't even imagine anything more terrifying. I would have diarrhea for days. Sure, I do have literally. diarrhea. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I well have that's diarrhea. good.
1: <laughs> I would literally have
0: diarrhea for days. I would just have to bring like a can of tucks with me and just feel the burn.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, my career has destroyed my asshole. I know. Um, you know, that in my personal life just, my butt's <laughs> totally dead. <laughs> no, I just well anyway, the book is not a comedy book. I felt After my divorce, after the last election, and after really focusing on engaging with feminism and concepts of feminism as the baseline of my spiritual practice, that I was like, man, before that happened, I just felt that my life fell apart. I felt like everything was in pieces, and I felt despair, and I felt a feeling that my life will always try to save itself. And that's something that I'm lucky that I have inside of me is the will to thrive and not just thrive, but like totally bloom and show it. And I felt the sort of pulse of the energy between the pieces of my life. And I was like, I am starting to be someone new and better because of all of the fragments. So I wrote a book that is basically like fragments of feelings And some of them are really sweet and some of them almost present as poems and some of them are like little creeds about how I want to live now. And I was describing it to my editor like I meant to write something that was somewhere between a menu and a Bible. Mm -hmm. If you were going to like eat from me or pray with me, (laughs) that's what's here. There's one piece in it that I wrote as honestly like a goodbye to the grief that I felt I felt a lot of grief after my divorce not because I wanted to remain married but because it just like felt like something died and I really felt like I don't want to live like this anymore I don't want to live wondering what would have happened if we could have kept it going and I wrote a piece that's at the end of the book that's like I made myself imagine what it would be like if a marriage had continued but When I wrote that out, none of it was what would have ever happened between us. And it really helped me realize it just unfortunately wasn't the right way. I remember an Obvious Child, your mom was Polly... Draper. Polly Draper,
0: Mm who I remember her playing your mom and the relationship that you had. I remember because it seemed so natural. I wondered if that was really like the relationship you had with your mother.
1: No, my mom's totally different than that. (laughs) And, like, I only had two days or so with Polly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got along great, but definitely that is acting and creating off of the script. My mom is a just totally different type of woman, and we could do, like, a five-part series about it. She just doesn't have a need for the things that I have the need for, and she just has a completely different personality than I have. But she's very caring She's never been mean to me, once. She's not manipulative, but she's just energetically morose. She's just a big worrier. Is she tight with your sisters? Yeah, we're all really close. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really love my mom, but I would say this to her face. I think there is a relentless engagement with things that are negative subjects. Like, who has cancer? What you can get cancer from? Where cancer comes from? (laughs) Just cancer constantly or like did you hear this thing? In my book, there's like a small essay where I write about being on the phone with my parents. And it's like, my dad says something like that there are so many tulips on the lawn and that my mom's reaction to the tulips on the lawn is that like the fox used to eat the tulips and there are too many tulips on the lawn. And so something must have murdered and eaten the fox. You know, so it's like, it's just like a different adjustment. I think I... Have come to accept it, but it like wears me out.
0: What an interesting way of seeing the world. Yeah, wow.
1: I mean, I, it makes sense to me. If you're like, you know, a Jewish person born in the 1950s, and you've just watched tons of people get murdered, yeah. <laughs> and your parents come from that generation. I mean, my dad's mom's a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. You live through things that I haven't lived through. I mean, now we're starting to, for sure, live through some of the most major things that in my lifetime, or maybe I'm just sentient enough to realize it. But I also think some terrible changes are occurring. And I think I've become kind of a relentless optimist without being repressed. But I do think I'm a relentless optimist because I don't love the fear that was included in my upbringing. Just the amount of stress that goes into packing a car to go to the beach, as if we are fleeing the country. Everything always has like a strange echo of like, they're going to ask us for our papers. And I just, I just want to move away from that a little bit.
0: I don't blame you.
1: <laughs> it's not. I just don't think we need to do it. You no. know, we're packing a Subaru. No. We're just trying to get to the beach. This is what I said to my dad yesterday. It was like, in the past four years of my life, I felt very dark and bad and that my life was a big, dark, bad room where bad things happened to me. And occasionally I would get a window and the window would appear. That would be my happiness. And I would look out and just be like, oh God, oh God, oh God, I've just got to keep looking out because soon the window will go away. And I didn't notice it, but I had a very negative belief system. And then recently I've realized, no, the fear is the interloper and now I feel that I live in a big room filled with light and I can go inside and outside anytime I want and occasionally the fear comes down Mm -hmm. and it pushes down the ceiling and I have to realize oh that's not what the structure of this is supposed to be like and I either have to crouch for a second or if I choose to I can like push up push up and just like push up that's how I feel right now. I think you can get to a point, I know I can, where, like, there's just no more other shoe. It's just, like, a different thing. That's perfect. We'll see. (laughs) Jenny Slate, thank you so much for being a guest on Style today. I love talking to you. I loved it, too.
0: I hope you're inspired after hearing Jenny's story For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Jay Brunson and Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza. Copy support was provided by Leanne Duggan. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with author and TV host Stacey London on Thriving Through Grief. We'll see you then.